Before we begin, this is a podcast about terrorism, which does mean that we do talk about acts of terrorism and extreme violence, so you may find some of the following material upsetting. Hello, I'm Fatma Ahmed, your host and guide in this series of Taking Apart Terror, the West African edition. Together, we'll analyze the realities of violent extremism in West Africa and delve into local, regional and international efforts and initiatives to prevent and counter violent extremism. In today's episode, we'll be asking, is there a way out? Joining me as we unpack this question are Luke Shonat Kambas, peace and stability expert, and Florian Morier, stabilization advisor at UNDP. So let's get started. In this episode, we're really trying to unpack and understand some of the reasons for defection, the various different pathways to defect, specifically in the different regional contexts in the Sahel West Africa, and understanding the different roles communities play and government play. So to start us off in the conversation, Luke, it'd be great to hear um, from your years of experience and reflections, what are some of the reasons for defection and disengagement from ISWA? Okay, thanks for the question, Fatma. I guess in my view, it's got to do with two elements mostly. One is disenchantment. Quite often in the case of people I met in Chad and I ended up meeting with about six to 700 people who had either voluntarily joined Boko Haram or been forcibly taken to Boko Haram. There were large cases of people who were disenchanted. They had left for the wrong reasons and they are left in pursuit of what they thought would be a better life. And I still remember one of them telling me that, you know, he had been promised, quote, unquote, iced water and food galore. Um, and then came to realize when he was in boot camp in northern Nigeria that you know, it was anything but. So a lot of disenchantment and a lot of fear. Living conditions were harsh back home, were definitely harsher under Boko Haram rule. And people would live in fear, fear of, you know, atrocities and things that had to, acts of violence that commit upon others. And fear of violence that would be inflicted upon them if they were not to comply. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, I mean, these, these were the, the two main drivers of uh, defection of or disengagement. To some extent, a lot of the people were still in touch with friends and families back home. So to the extent that it would be movements back to a given country, kind of like amicable social pressure would help. But it was not, at least for people I met with at the time, a major factor of defection. Interesting. And and uh, Florian, has that been also your similar experiences uh, from, you know, engaging with those that have left some of these groups and um, as well? Yeah, with those I talked with in, in Niger, um, yes, as Luke said, it was mainly disenchantment. They promised to receive a certain amount of money. And when they start to be uh, engaged, the money uh, has been taken away. And then they really thought to be involved to promote religious ideas. But when they were engaged in the group, they realized it was much more really conflict activities. And I also think why they also decided to quit is, of, co- of course, because of the deployment of the many security actors. So the wall is not easy. And then I also think that that person's most of the time, they start a family life. And then when they start it, I think they start to take care a little bit of their children. That's why so many surrenders, they came with their own family. They built this family in the bush. Of course, others came without family, but I suspect for some of them, uh, also the family parts could be important or should take into account. But of course, in the context of the Nick Chad Basin, uh, various different countries, different contexts, are the pathways out of Iswab the same in these countries or are they different? How do they how, how do they manage to help? So the condition to quit, uh, it's absolutely not an easy path. 
the people I talk with, um, first of all, they are carrying a lot of intel. And if they quit the group, they are potentially put the group at risk. So um, it's really hard for them to, to quit the group because the group doesn't want them to, to quit. And most of them have been forced to join. So quit the group, it's especially to quit with a family, it's a, it's a strategy. And then you have to cross a different territory, which is in control by the army. And they don't know how they will be received. But it really depends on different countries. And sometimes the country communicate about uh, a DDR program. Other countries are absolutely not prepared for. Some countries also have different messages. But the issue also, depending to who they are going to disengage or to be in a village, it will de- the future can be very different. So it's not easy. In Chad, it was an interesting case that at least, you know, when the, the first wave of defections took place in, like, you know, starting in late 2016, you had hundreds and at one point, like, you know, 1,600 people who were deemed to be affiliated with Boko Haram who had returned to Chad. And the reason they'd been able to return was because the return was, like, you know, unhindered. They would be systematically debriefed by the, the state's like, intelligence and security services, but essentially, except for a few people being arrested here and most of them were like, you know, were let free and were able to like go back to a given community or go back to a situation of displacement within the Chad border. So that was a strong incentive for return because they basically like, you know, realized fairly rapidly that, you know, return was free and they would not be subject to like, you know, violence, coercion, systematic arrest, so on and so forth. But that was a case in Chad where there was also an extremely strong network of uh, surveillance at community level. So the, the security services were confident enough in their ability to prevent, you know, issues at this being formed of where the situation would be. When it comes to Nigeria, the people I spoke to at the time, including Nigerian uh, officials, the situation was a bit different because there was a scheme of pathway of Boko Haram going through a NAC transit camp and uh, the Gombe facility. And basically, I mean, Operation Corridor gave them an opportunity to surrender and go through what was deemed the rehabilitation process. So these were the two main pathways and Navalguaram and the time for these two countries. Luke, just to expand on that, yeah, because it's very interesting, you know, we're getting different examples in terms of, you know, um, son having a very uh, formal process of screening and, you know, being in these centers and the others being able to return to the community. You know, what does the screening process look like? Uh, it, it, is it the same in each country and or for instance in Nigeria and Chad as you speak to? And that there's different experiences as well. Of course, you've been involved in this in so many different capacities. Uh, what have been, have you experienced been the same? What have you observed in the different pathways, how people have left as well? It would be actually great to hear because you both have spoken about, um, you know, the screening processes and, and how different countries in context, ha- um, you know, whether people are aware of the program specifically on in Nigeria or Operation Safe Corridor has often been referenced that, yeah, it'd be really interesting to hear a bit more from your experience and those you have spoken to. What is the experience like within um, the rehabilitation process itself, uh, the type of support that they are provided? The experience of return was a mixture of being back home and being alive. Of fear, I think that you know, the, the point that Florian made is, is, is really important for the, the, the few youngsters I met who have joined the Islamic State of like appeal of like your GID ideology, they return and we're having a conversation in Bani by the Nigerian border. 
And when I asked them, like, you know, if they had any fear for their own security, they told me, of course I do, because, you know, if, if Boko Haram knows I'm here, they'll kill me before they kill you. You may well be a foreigner, but I'm a traitor. Um, so for a number of them, it's like they do live in fear. It's not an easy process. They have been disconnected for years from their family. And sometimes, you know, the whole process basically has been fascinated by kind of like, you know, I mean, intra-family disputes and, and treasons. I remember cases of at least one woman who like was telling me that she, it's like, you know, it's her own little brother who basically forced her to join Boko Haram. So when she actually came back with all her brother, the community was angry at her for denouncing or being, in their own words, like disrespectful of, of her brother. That's first. And then she was also rejected by her husband because at the time she'd been taken to Boko Haram, uh, she was bearing child because she was like forced march on hundreds of kilometers. She lost the child. She had a miscarriage. And when they came back, the husband basically was asking for reparation for losing what he did was his child. So there was a lot of rejection. And for a number of women, I remember being taken aback by how much stigma comes with being single and having no children. In both cases, a lot of the female participants or returnees were really ostracized or, or rejected by a community which, you know, seen them as a bit of a burden, a bit of a letdown. So it's not easy. The real dilemma as the Nigerian authorities trailed with is that they had people in transit facilities that couldn't release them because the communities didn't want them back. They threatened to actually kill them. So they couldn't do anything with that. And they had enforced in that scenario and they got stuck and stranded in the process. So yeah, at least I can speak of these two um, scenarios. Proen, what do you think? The question was on rehabilitation. I am always doing the difference between rehabilitation and reintegration. To me, rehabilitation is what's happening when the person is still in a camp, uh, supervised or managed and not able to move freely. And then he, it's also, he received the package of training and support in what, in what we call the, the radicalization. This is what I, I, I'm thinking when we talked about rehabilitation. But before rehabilitation starts, it needs, as you say, it's just a, a program to be in place because if not, on which basis we will start a rehabilitation program. Most of the donors are really interested in, and start program and, and, and start funding on the rehabilitation. But if the basis is not there, and this was my job about, by the way, it's to put in place the national strategy, the legal framework before to make the rehabilitation possible. So voila, for the rehabilitation part, I mean, this deradicalization uh, program in a camp, it's just a piece of the whole reintegration path and it's not an easy one as well. It's also required many prerequisites before to be implemented. No, um, and thank you, Boren. I want to come back to a point, uh, Luke, you mentioned about, you know, this rejection in some communities and that their lives are also at threat. Is there a role that communities can play, whether it's community leaders, uh, to be able to support this reintegration process? Okay, in theory and in practice, the answer is yes. Because as you can imagine, like, you know, at least in, or in, in, in some parts of the lecture where you understand is essentially absent, a lot of the social interactions are regulated at the community or at the tribal level. So the community has, has, has a very important role to indeed accept people back, at least not make them feel ostracized. So in theory and in, in practice, yes. Where I see a bit of a caveat though is 
expecting the community to play a role in accepting people back in the absence of dedicated resources to do so is always something I struggle a bit with. I've worked on a number of like social cohesion initiatives where, you know, you expect that, you know, traditional lenders will do this, will do that. And, you know, there's going to be funding in facilitating kind of like, you know, dialogue sessions and things like that. But people have like real pragmatic needs when it comes to housing, when it comes to access to basic services, when it comes to making ends meet and like, you know, basic livelihoods. So I think, yes, communities and, and, and tribes in this case have a fundamental role to play. But we, we collectively as like, you know, international agents of change are key enablers in making sure that, you know, we put our money where our mouth is and we enable people to do the best possible job and have, you know, resources to actually, to actually make it happen. And because I think that, Again, the, the conditions were so spartan and so difficult that, you know, there's only so much expectation you're going to have from the community to share, you know, resources that most of them don't necessarily have in the first place. Florian, I'm sure you have some experience on this as well. What I also experienced is, of course, the, the big issue of reintegrate people associated with the armed group into a community. They are immediately targeted, marginalized. And some points, because the whole process I've seen, for instance, in Niger, was really related to the justice sector, actually. When the, the disengage came, the negotiation was about all the information they shared with the justice. Thanks to this information, they were able to make some progress and to move on, on about the captured person and not the disengaged people because even the captured they need to, to build a file build a file and, and, and move on with this fold on these cases so at some points I try to experiment the idea with the with the attorney the idea of protection of witness program because if that person they really collaborate with the justice they share very valuable intel this intel was on the basis of the trials it was not fair to reintegrate that people into communities where they have seen to be have collaborative people with the justice and, and be immediately at risk, especially in places where the conflict is still ongoing. So we explore the idea of protection of witness to be reintegrated in different localities. You look at these environments where we work in the case of like more lecture, where there is an expectation of a process of screening and, and risk assessment. And you realize a number of things. There's to this day, I was working on this for the past four months in another country. There is no international precedent of any kind of screening and risk assessment process for a case out of a few thousand people. It just doesn't exist, that's first. There's no international uh, precedent for such a process to be administered to women, let alone children. So we basically are trying to put in place systems that have never been tested before, at least not to that kind of scale and level of magnitude. And in countries where the capabilities are much lower, the environment it doesn't have like you know, the same extent of resources, and you want to repatriate them in an environment where there's already a lot of social tensions, if not conflict, and a lot of competition for resources that are not sufficient in the first place. In order to be appropriate, the approach requires a level of, uh, of agility that is sometimes difficult to find. But unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening in to this episode. In the next episode, we'll be asking the question, what is the bigger picture? Please follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Fatma Ahmed. Until next time, goodbye.